This week on A Lively Experiment, a federal judge says travelers can ditch their masks, but the Justice Department says not so fast. And a state senator proposes fining people for not getting vaccinated. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... Hi, I'm John Hazen White, Jr. For over 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS. Joining us with the analysis, Bill Lynch, former chairman of the Rhode Island Democratic Party, former state representative John Brien, and Republican strategist Lisa Pelosi. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm Jim Hummel. It has been a couple of months since COVID has led our discussion, but two developments this week have dominated much of the conversation. We'll get to a state senator's proposal to fine unvaccinated Rhode Islanders momentarily. But first, a federal judge struck down the Biden administration's mask mandate for trains, planes, and buses this week. The Department of Justice responded by saying it will appeal that ruling. Uh, as we both have, well, let me start with the lawyers on this panel. Um, Bill, the one thing that struck and me- Lawyers are liars. Yeah, well, <laughs> it depends on your perspective. Um, a lot of, in a lot of these cases of such, you know, import, a lot of times the judge will stay the ruling in order for it to go up to the appeals court. Before the ink was dry, the masks were coming off on planes. Did you find that unusual or, or not? I, I didn't think it was that unusual in this particular case. I mean, this is a Trump uh, Republican appointed judge in Florida, of all places, who got the case uh, and decided on three grounds, mostly on process, that, you know, that the legislature had overstepped its bounds. I, I mean, it wasn't shocking, I don't think, to anybody. By the way, if, if things continued as they were, the mask mandate was due to expire May 3rd, I think, anyway. Um, so I, I'm not sure why this has gotten so much discussion. Um, you know, the Justice Department says they'll appeal, but frankly, by the time the appeal is handled, it may be academic, hopefully, because COVID will continue to get better. I mean, that's really what everybody should be hoping for. Although we're seeing waves. So what do you think about the Department of Justice deciding? And I, I think it's not just for this case, but I think they're also worried about process. Should a judge be deciding as opposed to the CDC? Well, I, you know, it's really interesting. Jen Psaki had said the other day that there was only one plane full of people that were cheering the, the lifting of the mass mandate. And that is just so demonstrably false because you see videos from planes all across the skies from that moment that it happened. So I think it's somewhat myopic politically for the administration to want to go after this mass mandate. If they reinstate the mass mandate, that is a real political loser for them. It truly is. But to go back to what Billy said about, well, there's a Trump-era judge. I read yesterday a 2019 Washington Post article, and it was about how 70 executive orders or actions by the Trump administration had been overturned by federal judges. More than half of those judges were Democrat appointees. You never heard the wailing and gnashing of teeth that you did after the lifting of the mass mandate. Well, it's a Trump-era judge. It's this, this, you know, not, um, not qualified or just somehow, how can elected officials do that? You never heard that during the Trump years when all those executive orders were being overturned by Democrat uh, judges. Lisa? Yeah, I thought that it could have been handled just a little bit different, and I'm the non-lawyer here, so maybe I'm stepping into an area that I don't have too much background. 
But for the judge to issue the ruling and make it immediate, it was so disruptive for a number of people who had already made their travel plans and probably made them on the um, proviso that everyone would be masked. So I didn't understand why the judge could make the ruling and say, and this will take effect in 48 hours, just to get people to adjust and the TSA to adjust, because they were, we saw how the airports were kind of caught by surprise, too. That right, this the came recorded to loop was still saying. Yeah. But for the bigger <laughs> issue, it's really kind of an interesting balance of power from the judiciary to the executive branch. So when it comes to public health, where does it really lie? So we're seeing that the court seems to have the upper hand right now on that. What about I think that's the issue with the appeal, really, is, is where, does this go, where does this go from here? Not um, right now, but for down the line. Right. And I think that they want to get, you know, a, a real definitive order in place that can guide us going forward. I mean, nobody wants to see another pandemic, obviously, but there are other issues, health-related issues, that I think that the court probably has to address. I'm still trying to figure out how this mask became such a political issue in the first place. I mean, I've traveled twice in the last month by plane, once with my nine-year-old grandson. We put our mask on. Everybody on the plane had a mask on. There was nobody complaining. There were no fist fights. There was no screaming. There was no yelling. People in the airport were 99% compliant, and it wasn't a big deal. We got off the plane. We walked out of the airport. We took our mask off, and we went to Disney, and everything was, everything was okay. So I, I think that somehow this whole mask thing became a, a bigger issue uh, politically than probably most people ever thought it would. Um, and it's still a little bit puzzling to me because I think, generally speaking, most people are willing to be uh, a little bit uncomfortable if, in fact, they know that it's helping other people. And that sort of got lost in this whole discussion, I think. I think people wear masks when they travel because they have to. But if you gave people an option, which they have now, to wear a mask or not wear a mask, the vast majority of people are not going to do it, number one. Uh, number two, I think that the masks have become, Bill's right, a political symbol. But I find them to be a political symbol right now of the far left. Like, they're holding on to their masks as an as a, as a idea that they're going to virtue signal. This is who they are, and, and you can't tell me I can't wear a mask. It's really a strange thing where people are saying, well, you can't force me to wear a mask. I think that right now... People have the choice and the ability to wear a mask or not wear a mask. And like Bill said, he traveled, people were on a plane. Look, if you want to wear a mask, wear it. But don't force everybody to right. wear a and, mask and, because you're uncomfortable not wearing one. And that discussion is, and you know, I've thought about this. The next time I fly, will I wear one? I, I might. Because you think of all that. Now, they have great circulation on the planes and all that, but I think of how the planes used to be before COVID. I mean, you can imagine how dirty they were, and now all the cleaning. So, but right, it gives you the option. If you want to wear it, fine. And is anybody going to give you the stink eye? Probably not. No, and I don't think we'll ever want to be a society that has to wear masks every single day. So then that means if we're not doing it every single day, what are the criteria that public health officials should use to say to people, this is required for this reason, for this period of time, and when these metrics, whatever we're measuring, would it be the positivity rate, would it be the number of um, people in the hospital, you know, then when those numbers change, then we have to change our mask mandate. But we haven't had a very consistent message from the beginning, so people can understand, this is when I should wear it and when I yeah, shouldn't wear it. And the CDC it. has had a lot of stumbles, and I think that's the problem, because it undermines the confidence in the federal in the federal agencies. It could be because we started off with with former President Trump telling us we could just drink bleach or, in, or 
inject bleach and that would take care of things and you wouldn't we'll, need a mask. We'll save that for another discussion. Let's uh, <laughs> let's bring it back locally. Uh, the, the talk of the state was State Senator Sam Bell certainly um, got a lot of people talking when he filed legislation. This was filed a couple of months ago. It's finally getting a hearing now about what well, has actually haven't gotten to the hearing stage, but it is now being discussed that he would fine unvaccinated people, anybody over 16. And the thing that really got me, John, was, and by the way, double your income tax that you would have to pay. It's the, like, what? The legislation is blatantly unconstitutional, number one. Number two, I think it caught a couple senators by surprise because there was the walking around the floor, hey, this is a bill where everybody's going to get yeah, vaccinated. Yeah, tell me how that like, goes on the well, floor. Well, someone walks up to you and says, Hey Billy, I got this bill. People got to get vaccinated. You want to? You want to get on? And you look at it. You look at the last page for about two seconds. Yeah, that looks good. I'll put my name on it as long as I'm not in the top five, right? I mean, that's all right, and that's how it goes. <laughs> You're a backbencher. Yeah, as long as I'm not in the top five, it's fine. <laughs> so I think a couple senators got caught, and they regretted having their names on this lousy piece of legislation. It's blatantly unconstitutional, number one. But hubris is an amazing thing to have. To think that you could put this kind of bill forward and it's actually going to catch on, Nick Gorham would say NGN, not going nowhere with that piece of legislation for sure. And it will ne it'll get a hearing, but it'll be a circus for sure. But now, look, Sam Bell found himself with an opponent, David Salvatore, now as a result of because putting of it against, because of this lousy legislation. <laughs> yeah. I knew we couldn't get through this whole program without John quoting uh, Mr. Gorham. <laughs> <laughs> It's like Nick sitting right next to you. Look, Sam Bell, everybody up there has a con their constituency. He got elected. He's an ultra-liberal Democrat. I mean, I I've gotten away from the progressive term because I like to think all Democrats are progressive by definition. He's an ultra-liberal <coughs> Democrat, and he's entitled to put in bills that he believes in. The bill's it's going nowhere. It's not going to pass. It's gotten him, which maybe was by design, you know, a lot of discussion, people are talking about it, but it's not going to become law, it's not going to pass. I mean, people, whether we want to say it or not, people put in bills every year, and if you went through them and looked at some of them, you'd kind of raise your eyebrows and say, where did this come from? And they never see the light of day. You sound like Nancy Mayer in her first in her election against Jack Reed. Remember all those ads? The ultra-liberal <laughs> Jack Reed. I haven't oh. heard that term for many, many years. That's because I'm getting old, but I mean, <laughs> it, it's, it's true. Aren't we all? Yeah, I just thought, when I, I read the bill, and then I was thinking there was, what, usually, what, 2,000 bills introduced every single year in the General Assembly, and I'm reading, I'm thinking, this is really a bad bill. I mean, the way it was crafted, too. So not only is it a $50 per day fine. Per month. Per month, a fine. But who's going to enforce that? Right. And then, then double your, whatever you're paying in income tax. And then I kept reading, and then he threw, and then by the way, employers have to look at their employees, and then they're going to be fined if they don't have, if they're not vaccinating. So I thought you threw that in there too. So if nothing else, it just spurred a lot of conversation about whether a vaccine should be mandated or not. Yeah, I, I don't know what's worse than, look, he got attention, and you're right, the boomerang effect is that <clears throat> David Salvatore, former city council president, he's a former a formidable candidate for that district, but you wonder what's going through somebody's mind. In fairness to David, though, I spoke to David he was gonna plan. a long time ago. Yeah, it wasn't he like was he was already just planning on But it's running. a great jumping off point. I mean, but yeah, isn't it, but isn't I don't it, want I mean, people to have the impression that the only reason that David is <laughs> David's running coming off is because of the Right. Well, I, I will say this. Uh, Senator Bell said that, you know, obviously it's, it's because he's been taking on the corporate lobbyists that that's why they're coming for him now. No, they're coming for him because you've got someone, while 
Billy says, you know, he's entitled to put in the legislation he wants to. There are progressive Democrats, far-left, ultra-liberal progressive Democrats in the General Assembly. There are conservative Democrats. There are Che Guevara Democrats. There are JFK Democrats. And so he sits on the far left. And I think the move of the Senate went so far left that it's starting to come back. And you'll get guys like reasonable Democrats, like a David Salvatore, to want to run against him. How Sam would you Bell. describe Billy? What kind of Democrat is he? Is he a Che Guevara? <laughs> Uh, no, he's more like a Baghdad Bob uh, uh, Democrat. <laughs> All right. Uh, so let's let's uh, keep it on uh, politics. The governor's race. We talked last week about when are the candidates going to start advertising. It's with less than well, four gotta months. We got to get to this Republican candidate for <laughs> well, governor. I know. Well, I'm, here ready. I'm ready. I'm so, ready. Well, you know what? Like the gift Let, that like keeps her. On giving. Let's start with Ms. Pelosi, and then we will go over to Baghdad Bob. I almost feel bad for Lisa at this point. Am I being set up here? <laughs> You're not. You have the floor. Well, actually, I thought it was a very smart move on her campaign to go up on the air first. Ashley Kalis. Ashley Kalis, because we've been waiting to see who on the Democrat side was going up. We know Helena Folks has a boatload of money, and there's been talk about, oh, she's going on the air, she's going on the air. So for a Ashley Kalis to go on the air first, that was a great way, to, for one, for her to present herself to the, to the voters, but also to get her name in the mix. Because we know on the Democrat side, we have at least two women running, so at least we, she can be out there saying, here's another woman, you know, another candidate for consideration. So I thought it was a good thing for her to be up on the air and, on, and start to get her name out. But it was kind of a mashup of her, it was not really a new video. They took, she took the, whatever the three minute was and kind of put it together. All right, go wait, ahead. Wait a minute. Yeah, go ahead. All right. Get the video of <laughs> Ashley. Callis, is that how you pronounce her last name? She's not from Rhode Island. She probably couldn't find it on a map. She lands from, I wish she's from Illinois or, or Ohio or somewhere. She grew I don't up in remember. Massachusetts. But here's the thing, it, it, as today, the lead into her campaign is that her and her husband, who's a doctor, came to Rhode Island and grabbed a million-dollar contract to do vaccinations for people because of COVID. They did such a horrible job, apparently, is, all, is now on the front page of all the local media, that the contract was terminated early. But to make matters even worse, there's all kinds of text messages, horrible text messages be between her and our Department of Health. And on top of that, she then refused to vacate the premises so a qualified company could come in and take over and get Rhode Islanders safely vaccinated. And when she did leave, she stole the equipment of the company that Rhode Island Department of Health was bringing in to replace her company and was, and was going to have either herself or her employees facing criminal charges if they didn't return the stolen equipment that belonged to the Are new company. Are you writing the ad for the Democratic oh my, response? I, I would I, do it for nothing. This seems to me that you might be a little concerned that she might have a strong candidacy going here that you do with the way you just painted everything. I have to say, I read the article in the journal a couple of times in the one that was on the Channel 12 website, and I was kind of scratching my head because it wasn't very clear to me exactly everything that has happened there. So I think there's so much more to the story than the way you're presenting it right now. Than you do. <laughs> to correct Bill, uh, actually, it wasn't a million dollar contract. It was, it was a seven, seven million dollar contract. Yeah, so, uh, right. So I didn't want to get in the way yeah. of your momentum, but yes, <laughs> but seven will, million. But, no, but I, but I will say this: I don't think that that's the issue upon which Rhode Islanders, when they cast a vote, are going to want to hang their hat on about this COVID contract. I think that it's got to see who's going to come out of the Democrat primary, and I would recommend for any uh, candidate, particularly Governor McKee, at this point. Stop trying to tack left because the candidates just keep trying to out left each other on the Democrat side. 
And that is not going to have, I think, a good result for them moving forward into the general election. Look, there's going to be snapback in 22. I think everyone can agree to that. And there is fatigue at this point um, in this state and in this nation with far-left politics. And I think the more that the candidates on the Democrat side continue to try to out-left each other, that just leaves a lane open for the Republican candidate at this point to say, look, I'm not them. So someone on that Democrat side has got to say, I'm not them. But they don't seem to be doing that up to this point. Let me tell you, there have been times in the past, and Lisa and I have talked about this many times, when I was the Democratic chair, where, where I had, unfortunately for me, to contend with very substantial, significant, qualified Republicans, particularly candidates for governor. We had Link Allman. I mean, how, how do you say anything bad about Link Allman? Don Kachiri, I, you know, I had my political differences with him, but a, a person of significance qualified. And a Rhode Islander. I mean, <laughs> and a Rhode Islander. So to, to, with all due respect to this Ashley, I mean, to throw her into the mix, I, I just don't see it. I'm not even sure she'll be the Republican candidate to the end at this point, if this is any indication of where this is coming from. I mean, well, I think you would agree we need to have a Republican candidate running for governor. We just can't just have a Democrat on. And if you had to write a profile of the type of candidate that you would want to see running, you know, for a Republican, someone who is qualified, um, educated, self-funding, and has a real passion for wanting to do this work. So that's what I see in her um, right now. And we'll just have to wait and see how her campaign... I think this is just a little blip. I mean, if we want to talk about little blips, I think uh, Governor McKee has a few over his head right now, too. So how much those issues will be part of the campaign, we'll see going forward. But for her, you know, right now, it's to get out and tell the voters exactly why she's the best qualified person to become governor. I, I just think that, you know, and I can't disagree with my colleagues, but what I will say is that if the Democrat candidates continue to tack left, all you have to do for Ms. Callis is just simply when it comes time for the election, show pictures of her winning the Golden Glove Championship and say, Ashley, she'll fight for you. Uh, are you tired of this? You know, t enough. Are you tired of this? She'll fight for you. And that'll go a long way. <laughs> the, the voters have short memories. <laughs> Bill would love to see well, that. Hey, the voters don't have dementia. They might have short <laughs> memories, but come on. So uh, among the Democrats, now we talked about Helena folks, uh, Banana folks, uh, raising a lot of money. Nellie Gorbeo is kind of quietly doing her thing. At what point, Governor McKee has, his, has the microphone every day. At what point do they have to get, particularly Helena folks, very few people know her. She's got a lot of money. At what point do you start spending that money to get on the air? I think that Helena will start spending money shortly. I mean, because um, nobody's paying attention in July no, and early August. No, no. We're and all at Scarborough. That's the challenge, right? When I was the chair, we had a lot of discussions that never went anywhere about do we move our primary, do we adjust it, do we move it into the spring instead of September. You, because all sitting legislators don't want that well, because people are going to be out right, campaigning. That's right. right. But the problem is, and you're exactly right, when people are on vacation, kids are out of school in July and August, it gets very hard to to make any headway if you're running for office and, be, and you know, the primary's on top of you like that in September. So I think that, that you'll see the candidates, particularly those like Helena, who don't have the, the you know, name recognition uh, from people, are going to have to sort of adjust. I think that's probably why you're, you're, at least for now, your candidate for governor, you know, got up on the air. And I think that Probably Helena will do the same thing. You know, if you're Governor McKee, uh, if you're Nellie Gorbea, a little bit different because you've got, you know, the, the free press, you know, yeah, that, that others don't have. But if you're 
if you're the David Siegels and the Helena folks uh, and, and people like that, I think probably the pressure's on you to at least at least get out uh, shortly and and maybe go until June and then maybe maybe slow down a little bit in in July and August, but not go black and then be prepared to really you know there'll be a huge <laughs> come Labor Day, wave it's be, it's come Labor Day. Well, what I found interesting this week and and Billy's absolutely right, you know, uh, Governor McKee and has the ability to be out there every day. I think the Secretary of State, Nella Gorbea, it's, it's tougher to be out there every day. So this week, she released, I'm going to release 10 years of tax returns, and everybody else should. I don't know what that does, like, because she's been a state employee for the last 10 years, so I don't know what that is trying to prove, other than if she, in this primary, is going to try to say, well, um, the, other, you know, the other candidate made money in the private sector and did well for herself, and that's a bad thing. I don't think the voters look at that as a bad thing, and I think that tact of saying, well, I don't make a lot of money because I've been in state, I've been a state employee for the last 10 years, and they have, that's not a winner, and I don't think that that's a great strategy. Yeah, you know, and I'm not seeing many of the Democrat candidates getting any traction either right now. So what you said, I mean, here we are almost at the end of April. We're going to get into that summer mode, and then, like you said, coming back from Labor Day to the primaries about a week. So I'm asking you, Bill, do you think any of the Democrats are going to drop out before the September primary? I don't think so right now. I mean, honestly, I can't even name a, a couple. The, the guy yeah, that was that following guy. the car and is following the license plate or whatever his name is. There's some people that are running that are not legitimate candidates. Well, that's CD2, but we have, right. but, but in the governor's race, I mean, Matt Brown made the big splash about the, and I know how you feel about the progressives, but he's uh, he made the big splash, and then we haven't really heard anything since uh, then about the Rhode Island political cooperative. No, but I think, the, I think the issue, you know, Matt Brown has a constituency, and I think this, to his credit, he makes it very clear that that's why he's running, and this this campaign, even if he's not successful, will permit him and his team to to push their agenda, which John doesn't like, but that gives them that opportunity. But in terms of the other candidates, I think that the top tier candidates have a strategy in place, and I think you're going to see it start to develop much more quickly as we hit May. But everybody has the challenge; it hasn't changed as long as we've been doing this, that yeah. when you hit July and August, it becomes a real grind to figure out how to kind of get people's attention. It's not number one. You can go to a, a lot of picnics, you can go to a lot of barbecues and, and walk the beach and things, but it's very difficult to get people to focus on uh, a campaign in July and August. Did they all file papers in June, do you think? We I think so. Governor McKee, Nellie Gorbea, Helena Bonanno folks, uh, Matt Brown, and Dr. Munoz. Do you think all five? I think they'll file. I think they'll file papers. I think they'll, get, they'll get their signatures, and we'll see how far they're going to go. I mean, I think really the top three, the first three you, you mentioned, mm -hmm. I think that's really where the race is. I don't think Matt Brown is actually a viable candidate at all. Billy says they do have their constituency, but it's not one that I think Rhode Island at large is buying into at this point. I think there's a lot of fatigue with the progressive agenda right now. Uh, Congressional District 2. <laughs> By the way, John's been called a lot of things over the years, but progressive is not one. <laughs> that is true. That is absolutely true. Yeah. He, he's never tacked left. No. <laughs> um, Congressional District 2, uh, since you guys have been on, Jessica Dela Cruz dropped out, so it really is paving the way, with all due respect to Representative Lancia, uh, Alan Fung leading the way. And so your thought, 
nationally as things uh, somebody actually Wendy last week was talking about how you might not want Joe Biden uh, endorsing you if you're the Democratic candidate this year anyhow so what are your thoughts about CD2 well um, first of all I thought it was very graceful the way uh, Senator De La Cruz um, withdrew from the race and endorsing uh, Mayor Fung to go forward so you know kudos for her on that and this allows um, the mayor to be more of the candidate he was originally so instead of being pulled to the right I see him now being able to be in that moderate um, lane, which is more his comfort zone. And then with what we're seeing nationally, I do think we can expect the Democrats to be swept out and the opportunity for a Republican, even from Rhode Island, to make it to the U.S. House this year. Look, I think there's going to be a competitive race. I think that Seth, his magazine, will end up winning. But I think, I think in, in he gets the fact that it's going to be a competitive race. The district sets up, you know, to make it a competitive race. Um, you know, Alan Fung, you know, has his history in Cranston, um, and, and it's very different than the first congressional district that I live in in terms of the constituency. So I think it'll be challenging, but, you know, I think that, that in, in the end, I think that people still will look to the Democratic message in Rhode Island. I think Democrats have a problem nationally. You know, we can get into that at some point, but... I think that, that there's a real opportunity for some damage to be done nationally for the Democratic Party. But I think Seth Magazina is going to be well uh, situated to, to come out of that. Quickly. I think David Siegel was the greatest gift to Alan Funk because I served with Dave Siegel in the Rhode Island General Assembly. Smart guy. We, we agree on absolutely nothing, but he certainly has his constituency, and he's going to keep Seth Magaziner very busy and, that, and, spend, and have to spend money, and that's a big help to Alan Fung. Okay, let's go to uh, outrageous and or kudos. Mr. Lynch, let's begin with you. I'm going to make mine a public service announcement. Oh, here we go. I, it, I know he's watching Joe Trillo. <laughs> we've got to send a message to Joe Trillo that that despite Lisa's defense of, of Ashley, He's got that run? the beginning of the end has started for the Rhode Island's uh, present Republican candidate for governor. Joe, your party needs you. You've got to come back. You've got to run for governor. He's still got the boat, right? And probably the sign, don't you think? Absolutely. You want to comment on yeah, that? Yeah, I not? think, you know, Joe, stay in Florida. <laughs> Ashley's got this covered, so. <laughs> what do you have? Uh, so Easter wasn't the only holiday this past week. If we look at um, Wednesday, which is April 20th, also known as 420, which is the unofficial marijuana Have holiday. Have participating in the 420 holiday? In the 420 <laughs> holiday. So I just wanted to throw out kudos uh, to AAA to be out there on Wednesday warning people of impaired driving. Uh, under the um, under the influence of cannabis, so and I'm just waiting for next year. Should the General Assembly approve legalized mar marijuana in Rhode Island, that we too will be celebrating 420. I think it's really sad that Americans can fly everywhere, be on trains, be on buses, and nobody has to wear masks right now. But the only people that have to wear masks left, for the most part, in the United States of America are two- to four-year-olds in New York City going to school. It just doesn't make sense. Is that any, true still? Yeah. It's, it, the toddlers are still masked, and I really think that that is nonsensical policy. That is politics over common sense, and uh, it's really disappointing, and I hope Mayor Adams will just realize that it's just time. You know, it's going to be interesting, though. We have just about a minute left. The numbers, they've reinstituted the indoor mask mandate in Boston. You see the spike in numbers a little bit. And the COVID, I know a lot more people have gotten COVID, but it's milder. But it's interesting to see how the local municipalities, it's still not over yet. I think the problem, and I'll keep it short, is that nobody likes to wear a mask. I think we'd all say, I'd rather not wear a mask. But people seem to equate, if, if I refuse to wear a mask, there'll be no COVID. 
it doesn't work that way. I mean, it just doesn't. So um, I, I think that we're going to deal with this going forward. And, and I think whether we like it or not, it's the new normal. And maybe mass, the numbers will go up and mass you know, mandates will be back temporarily and then go on. But I think, I think we have to get used to it. I think the efficacy of mass is, is under question with, anyway, but I think we just need to learn to live with COVID. It's here. Influenza's here. The common cold's here. There's a lot of things here. We're in an endemic. We just need to move on. All right, folks, that is all the time we have. It's a quick 30 minutes. John, nice to see you. And Bill, good to see you. Guys, a little kumbaya moment going on here. <laughs> and Lisa, as always, thank you so much. Folks, thank you for joining us. If you don't catch us Friday at 7 or Sunday at noon, you can always watch us at ripbs.org lively, where we have all of our shows archived. You can check us out on Facebook and Twitter, and we're on your favorite podcast. So wherever you get it, take us along with you. Um, hope you have a good week and come back here next week as the Lively Experiment continues. Experiment is generously underwritten by. Hi, I'm John Hazen White Jr. For over 30 years, a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS.